millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor, Foreign, in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S., in Washington, D.C. I'm Alex Kruger, International Managing Editor, in London. It's Thursday, the 1st of September. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Mikhail Gorbachev, former and final leader of the Soviet Union, passed away on Tuesday at the age of 91. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We discuss his life and the tragic irony of events in this, the year of his death. Then we turn to elections in Sweden. Security, fighting crime. That is what voters feel is the most important issue. That is what I see when I meet people around the country today. We also take a listener question on flooding in Pakistan. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. I cannot believe that it is already September. And I also can't believe, although I suppose I should, he was 91, the news of the first subject we're going to discuss this week. So Megan, Alex, let's get into it. Mikhail Gorbachev died at 91 this week. He helped bring about an end to the Cold War and ushered in an era of openness and reform in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. The consequences of which, including ultimately his resignation and the dissolution of that empire, he could ultimately neither see nor control. Alex, I'll start with you. What were your first impressions, first thoughts, first reactions on learning of Gorbachev's death? My reaction was that he was a man who rather outlived his time. He was 54 when he became leader of the Soviet Union in 1985. He was 91 when he died. He left power after a few years in office where he had achieved an enormous amount, but events overtook him, overtook his reforms. He started this process that he could not control and whose end he could not foresee. Nobody could. And I think the reaction from a lot of people was, was he still alive? Because he had kind of faded into the background, you know, he was this historic figure, and yet Russia is so changed 
from what emerged from the wreckage of the Soviet Union, what he created and, and where it is now. And Megan, what about you? I admit my first knee-jerk instinct was, wait, he's already dead. And then I was like, no, of course. It's just, especially with the events that have happened this year in Russia, the the pace at which change has happened and that we've seen, it's hard to grasp the the speed with which things have changed. 1991, it's it's... It's within all of our lifetimes, but it's it's yeah. another world. It's a completely different world. Then my second thought was, wow, this really is the end of history. And then, of course, there's mm. all, all the, the jokes and quips you could make about, about that whole theory. And, and then the next thing that really comes to mind is just what has driven Putin throughout his career or since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But really what we've seen it all come to a head to with Ukraine and how he thought the collapse of the Soviet Union was the biggest catastrophe in his history. So, I mean, it's just so many historical things and current events just coming to one head in in, in this event. Absolutely. I guess I felt sort of sad is not the word, but sort of melancholy in that, firstly, although he died and spent the latter part of his life celebrated in the United States and, and I think in some parts of Europe anyway, for ending the Cold War and for for reform and for understanding that things could not continue as they were, that it was too dangerous and too expensive and too repressive. In his own country, which is to say in Russia, he was loathed in many corners, both because of the economic hardship that marked the end. He was famous for glasnost or openness in perestroika or reform. And the, the sort of cliche thing that people say about him is that People got glasnost so they could protest. They could say what was not working, but perestroika didn't go far enough or fast enough. And also at the same time was too far and too fast, right? So people were adjusting to change and also the changes that needed to be made were not being made, all of which is to say that people faced economic hardship. And also in addition to all of that, nationalist hardliners, as we know, were not happy with the direction that, that he took. And ultimately he was not able to withstand that political pressure. And he unwittingly, set in place the the chain of events that ended with the the dissolution of a country or an empire, really, and that many Russians today thought less of him for that. I was interested to see the reaction from various countries. So in the West, yes, he was celebrated. And I think in a lot of the former Warsaw Pact countries also, you know, G- Germany, he did not try to, to stop the Berlin Wall falling. But within the Soviet Union right. itself, we should we should draw a yeah. real distinction between Warsaw Pact countries and and particularly the Baltic states, um, especially Lithuania, where the Soviet yeah. Union really did repress independence for as long as they could, and Georgia. So you know he's not celebrated there either. And I, I also want to say the other reason that I felt melancholy is that this was the last six months, the year of his life. I wrote a very short obituary, and we'll put it in the show notes to this piece. But I think that despite Lithuania and Georgia and despite the economic hardship and despite the things that he got wrong, I really do think that Gorbachev understood, even if he didn't understand the consequences of the policies that he would pursue, I think he, he really did understand. I mean, he said, he was quoted as saying, we cannot continue to live like this. He didn't mean in the Soviet Union, but he meant with the corruption and the complacency and the stagnation and the lying and the repression and the oppression and understood that the past wasn't coming back and the present was going to look different in the future. And I think 
Putin, quite clearly from his war in Ukraine, does not understand that, which is why he's fighting a war to bring Ukraine back under Russian control and in the process pushing Ukrainians arguably farther away than they've ever been from Russia. The fact that he died as this war is going on and the contrast between these two different ideologies, and that's not to pretend that Gorbachev had no flaws, that's not to pretend that he was some pure hero, but I think the the difference between his ideology and Putin's is pretty stark to, to Megan's point. But he did support Putin's annexation of Crimea. Although he had, yeah. he had very clear differences with Putin, he also aligned himself with some of those policies. He was against NATO expansion. He decried US imperialism, Germany's ambitions in Europe. So yes, he was much more liberal than Putin, but on certain points, they, they were agreed. Yeah, I mean, his reasoning for the annexation of Crimea, which I disagree with, was that that is what most people in Crimea wanted. And honestly, there were many people in Crimea who did relate to Russia more than they did to the regime in Kiev. And I think it is not reasonable to expect the former leader of the Soviet Union to think like like we do, right? He also said that although he supported the annexation of Crimea, that war was unthinkable. Clearly, it was not unthinkable. And I, I just think that there's a real, there is a real difference between saying, I don't want NATO expansion, the people of Crimea want to be in Russia, and the U.S. has gone too far. There's a very real difference between that and, and so I'm going to invade and take over Ukraine. Yeah, I think, obviously, he had very strong democratic instincts, but he was also someone who was raised and formed in the strictest bureaucratic system that makes it quite remarkable that he was able to do the changes he was. We can't we can't expect him to be completely fully aligned with the West because that, that just I mean, that would be truly remarkable. I mean, but yeah, so there, there obviously was some remnants of the system that he came up in and was a part of that he never was going to shake. But it's true that his his democratic instincts really were quite remarkable. And that and that's why he's been so heralded in the West. And also why Russia today had no real place for or use for him. Before we move on, you know, we talked about the irony of him dying during the war in Ukraine. I did want to briefly discuss the latest in the war. Um, Alex, can you give our listeners an update? Well, um, we have seen the start of the much-vaunted southern offensive around the district of Kherson. And what seems to have been happening over the past few weeks is that the Ukrainians have been preparing the ground by taking out strategic targets within the region, particularly the bridges crossing the Dnieper River, and therefore trying to pin the Russians down. Now there is actually a ground offensive. It's very difficult to know what's going on because, of course, the two sides are producing completely different narratives. There does seem to be fighting. It doesn't seem to be decisive. And all the projections are that this will go on for a long time. The other thing to mention is the nuclear plant at Zaporizhia. This delegation from the International Atomic Energy Agency, the UN watchdog, is supposed to be going in. That's been really difficult even to get as far as sending this group in. They're supposed to spend several days there, but we don't yet know if they'll be able to get there safely because there has been shelling in some of the towns around the plant. That is where the movement seems to be. And in the rest of the East, it seems to be very incremental changes of control on either side. Another irony of discussion around this nuclear facility when, you know, part of what 
marred and marked Gorbachev's legacy was that eventually, after hesitation, he allowed some public scrutiny on on Chernobyl. And Alex, we were chatting before that, and you were remarking on how that was, one never wants to try to read into a, a famous leader's mind and psychology too much, but apparently the, the corruption and the secrecy around that was one of the things that he internalized and that led him to pursue reforms in the Soviet Union. Yes, but that was after hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians were allowed to march in a May Day parade. Right. Chernobyl was still being covered up. And this is one of the events that contributed to the growing sense of separation between Kiev and Moscow. So Chernobyl, yeah. it wasn't just an industrial accident. It had political consequences for the fall of the Soviet Union. And here we are. And for Ukrainians who think of themselves as, a, in many ways, a distinct people, a nation and country for the sovereignty of which they're, they're still fighting for. We are going to switch gears now considerably, although the conversation of democracy will continue because... Sweden is heading to the polls on the 11th of September, and the hard right party is looking to improve its standing in Swedish politics. That's right. The national Sweden Democrats have linked up with the center right opposition to try to kick the social Democrats minority government out of power. Fortunately for you listeners, our Nordic expert and boss, Megan, is on the podcast this week. Megan, remind us why they're going to the polls in the first place. I think often when we discuss these elections, it's like, well, they wanted to grab more seats. This is not that. This is this is Sweden has an election. Sweden has an election. The top line. Yes. <laughs> for for Magdalena Andersson, prime minister for her party, the Social Democrats, this it will probably they probably won't grab that many more seats right now. They're they're polling at about the same level as they did in 2018. So they have about 30 percent. So they're not really expected to see a big bump. This is somewhat ironic because Magdalena Andersson herself is the most popular party leader in Sweden by some margin and for some time. There was a poll that just came up from the daily newspapers over the weekend that 55% of the public trust her as prime minister. And when you just look at women, that jumps up to 65%. So she, she is enormously popular. A lot of this has to do with the subject we were just speaking of, which is Russia's war in Ukraine. The public thinks that, you know, she's done an amazing job standing up to Putin. She's opting to take the country into NATO, which is a very enormously popular decision within Sweden. It's also a historical decision, seeing as how Sweden for the past 200 years has been militarily non-aligned. So it, it really is quite momentous and people really like her. Funnily enough, that hasn't really translated into a bump for her, her party. And at the same time, we have seen the similarly named Sweden Democrats, but very ideologically different party, has had quite a rise. And they are now polling at around 20%, which makes them the second most popular party. And if that is actually how the vote share lands in the election, they will be the, the opposition. Now, we're talking about 30%, 20%. Sweden's political landscape is very fractured. So there are almost always coalition governments. Usually we think of the parties as, you know, forming a left block and a right wing block. So if the Sweden Democrats, so the hard right party with neo-Nazi roots, does manage to be very successful in the voting, then they'll likely partner with the right wing moderate party. And probably there's a few other 
smaller parties that last time had kingmaker roles. They probably won't as much this time, but that's also the Liberal Party and the Christian Democrats. They both pull around 5%. Um, so smaller, but you know, every little bit helps when you're trying to form a majority coalition. And what has changed this time than, has, than from last time is that the center party, which is kind of traditionally more on the center right, mm-hmm. has opted to have nothing to do with the Sweden Democrats. They do not want to form a government with them. So they've said that they are going to align with the left side. And, you know, they would form a coalition government with the Social Democrats, the Green Party and the left party. That really tips the math and the scale towards Magdalena Andersson staying as prime minister and having a much stronger government right now. So it's just a minority government. They could have a majority coalition government. It would kind of change things as that it wouldn't traditionally be what we would think of as a left party. It would be more a unity party. But for a lot of people, that that would be seen as a a huge positive. There would be a bit more stability in the government. So I have a couple of questions. I'm sure Um, you do. And then I'm going, yeah, I mean, I didn't even know why they were going to the polls. No, just kidding. So just if you could put a finer point on it, why is a party with neo-Nazi roots doing better right now? It seems like there's been ample evidence from around the world that this is not ideal, like the best route for for good governance. And two, why is the center-right going along with them? Because there also seems to be examples from around the world, like, say, D.C., that the more moderate partner will not be able to control the direction of this alliance. Both very good questions. They're kind of related so the Sweden Democrats, who has neo-Nazi roots, has done a remarkable job as managing to rebrand itself as just a more straightforward law and order and anti-immigration party. And it is in law and order where they really have been successful in peeling off votes away from the other right-wing parties and some of the center parties. Now, Sweden is particularly maybe not compared to the US, but for a European country and for a Northern European country in particular, experiencing a pretty like remarkable surge in gang crime and gun violence. I don't know the most recent, but around midsummer there had already been 44 gun deaths this year. So we're looking at more than a, a, a gun shooting deaths a week, which for a Northern European country, as I said, is is just quite remarkable. And it's the worst year on record for gun violence. And so there is a real feeling that the Sweden Democrats have capitalized on that Magdalena Anderson's government hasn't been able to get this under control. So they've seen a real surge in their own support. And since they are now eclipsing the more traditional right-wing parties, those right-wing parties have, well, basically decided that they are going to forget the past and look towards what they see as their only future in forming a government and have said that they will work with them. Listeners who are interested in this and would like to learn more are in for a treat next week, just to, to tease a little bit. Alex, go ahead. I was just interested in the regional context. There do seem to be quite a few female leaders in Northern Europe, quite a few young, younger leaders. And of course, the Finnish prime minister has found herself in hot water for behaving like a normal 30-something. 
Um, do these leaders make common cause? Is there a sort of is there a regional trend that you can detect? The Nordic countries and the Scandinavian countries have long had this reputation as being, you know, basically a utopia of equality, especially when it comes to to gender. The irony is that Magdalena Andersson is Sweden's very first female prime minister. And I think when she was named prime minister, which was just last November, it caused headlines around the world because I think so many people are so used to just falling back on the assumption that Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark are these, you know, feminist paradises that they they didn't even clock that, you know, they haven't had a female leader. It's come to chance because, you know, female politicians are very, very commonplace in Sweden. Many political parties in Sweden have female leaders. So it's been just, you know, I don't want to say bad luck because obviously there's some systemic problems in there as well. But what I think is really interesting about all of these women leaders in the Nordic countries is it's kind of challenging the idea of the existence of a feminist foreign policy. And that whole idea was first put forward by a foreign minister by Sweden, that women leaders really naturally tended to embrace, you know, more feminist policies when it came to how they conducted themselves on on the global stage and how they dealt with other countries. The funny thing about this idea is when you really examine it, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. Well, first you have to define what is a feminist foreign policy. The traditional things you think as pacifist, you know, non-interventionist, you know, policies that work to support more women, policies that work to eradicate poverty, policies that work to support the climate. We're not necessarily seeing a uniform embrace of that across the Nordic countries. I mean, while we would all be quite supportive of Finland and Sweden's decision to join NATO, there are a lot of people that would say, you know, joining a military alliance is not a feminist foreign policy move. While I'm not criticizing any of their foreign policy, I think it's just really interesting that it has kind of, you know, thrown cold water on the whole idea of a feminist foreign policy full stop. Megan actually has a piece on Nordic female leaders that we will also put in the show notes to this piece. Much food for thought. And again, we will have more Sweden next week. So if there was any Swedish political party name that we did not get to in this episode, don't you worry. It's there coming. more here on the New States of the World Review. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. 
One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It is time for a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Well done. One day. It's a, a heavy question this week. I should warn listeners. One listener asked, I'm hearing about flooding in Pakistan. Why are these floods important enough for me to hear about? And if they are so important, why am I not hearing more about them? I sort of get what this person is saying because you don't normally think that like weather reaches international news. And on the other hand, okay, if this has reached international news. Why are we not talking about it all the time? I think is what this person's getting at. So there's flooding in Pakistan. I mean, it's it's truly devastating. A third of the country is underwater. Over a thousand people have died. Some 15% of the population, which is like millions and millions of people have been affected by this. People have been displaced. You're hearing about it because this is a major, Pakistan is a, it's an incredibly populous country and this has affected millions of people. This is also a story about how the climate decisions and actions taken or not taken by richer countries end up impacting the whole world, including countries that don't necessarily have as many resources to deal with the consequences of climate change. Why are you not hearing more about it? I mean, the callous and I think correct answer is that, you know, if you, for example, are in Britain and you heard more about the heat waves this summer, though they were horrible, but exponentially less devastating than this flooding, it's because you live in Britain and you read the English language media and the publications. It was happening to you. It, it was, was happening to you. you. <laughs> this, this happened across Europe. So it was right on the doorstep for, for many of our listeners. And Pakistan, you know, the, there are monsoon rains every year and th- there's, there's always a certain amount of disruption. And the fact that these rains were on a completely different scale 
sometimes it takes a while for for people to catch up with what's actually happened and the devastating impact it has had. Yeah. And I think, I mean, two other things following the story have jumped out at me. The first is that it's not just flooding, right? Pakistan has also been hit by incredible heat. And neither one of these things in all likelihood is going to get better year on year if left to its own devices. The other thing that's really struck me is have been the calls for support for mutual aid, which is remarkable and inspiring. And also just, you know, we talked about this a lot during the pandemic about how, while on the one hand, it was so heartwarming to see and inspiring to see people contribute to support one another. It's just not enough. I don't mean at all, at all to disparage calls for mutual aid, to disparage calls for support. People are hurting, they need help. But the, the scale of this problem um, needs a systemic, structural, large-scale solution. I think there's an aspect of that as well that kind of feeds into the answer of why we don't hear more about these kinds of things. When it's some a problem in Pakistan of flooding and heat waves, and we're talking about tens of millions of people displaced, more than a thousand dead so far that they even know about, and it's because because of the climate catastrophe, the scale of the problem becomes so vast that it's hard to comprehend. And if something's hard to comprehend, it's hard for, I think it's hard for people to read about because yep. it's powerlessness, fear, it causes anxiety. It's, it's much easier to read about something smaller and tangible that you can wrap your mind around, like death of the final leader of the Soviet Union than it is yeah, you know, like something that is so huge and unsolvable that it's going to take worldwide governmental systematic cooperation to, to tackle and that no one sees that happening. We also have a piece on flooding in Pakistan that we will put in the show notes to this that you can read. And we sincerely encourage you to read it. You'd like to know more about the story, which unfortunately and tragically is not going away in the near, medium, or or long-term future. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us Monday for an interview episode with Professor Dominic Hines for a deep dive on Sweden's elections. We also encourage you, if you are a regular World Review listener and you have not already subscribed, to please subscribe. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars, not four, five stars, and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you so much for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.